Hello, and welcome to the August 2019 issue of the MDS Podcast, the official podcast of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. I'm Sarah Schaefer from the Yale School of Medicine, and I'm pleased to introduce our guest today, Dr. Farwa Ali, Assistant Professor of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Ali will be talking with us today about her recent paper in Movement Disorders Clinical Practice entitled Utility of the Movement Disorder Society Criteria for Progressive Supranuclear Palsy in Clinical Practice. Dr. Ali, welcome and thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It's a pleasure to join you today. So your study stemmed off of the MDS criteria for PSP that was published back in 2017. Before we talk about your study, uh, the specifics of your study, I wonder if you can give us a little bit of background on how the clinical criteria for diagnosing PSP have evolved over the years. I'd be happy to do that. So as you know, the initial description of PSP uh, was put forward in 1964 with a case series of nine patients who had symptoms of postural instability, vertical supranuclear gaze palsy, speech, language, and some cognitive symptoms. The first formal criteria was the clinical and research criteria for PSP developed by the NINDS and the Society for PSP in 1996, led by Dr. Irene Litwin. Definite PSP has always been defined neuropathologically. The 1996 criteria identified possible PSP as postural instability and slowing of vertical saccades, whereas probable PSP was characterized by postural instability and vertical supranuclear gaze palsy. These were patients 40 years of age or older with the onset of unprovoked falls within the first year of symptoms. So as you can see, the primary phenotype of PSP neuropathology that was recognized at that time was what we now know as Richardson syndrome. Since then, we have learned a lot more about the phenotypic or clinical manifestations of PSP neuropathology. This can really present with a very diverse range of symptoms. And this was eventually recognized in the 2017 MDS-PSP criteria published in the June 2017 issue of Movement Disorders. And this criteria is really exciting because it recognizes a variety of clinical phenotypes of PSP and a range of ocular, uh, motor, cognitive, speech, and language symptoms that can result from this condition. Great. That's a really good uh, overview of everything. So what prompted your team to perform this particular study? And can you tell us the basic design of the study? Absolutely. So once, uh, once we saw the MDS-PSP diagnostic criteria, we were excited to apply it to an independent cohort of neuropathologically proven PSP and non-PSP cases. So that led us to doing the first study uh, that was the PSP criteria sensitivity and specificity analysis, which was published online uh, February 2019 uh, in Movement Disorders and appears uh, actually in the August issue of Movement Disorders in print. As we were applying uh, the MDS-PSP criteria to this independent cohort, we realized that it, it is challenging in some ways in that uh, many patients met various different phenotypes at any given point in time. And then they also met criteria for many different phenotypes during the course of their follow-up. And we felt that that may lead to some challenges in the practical application. It was soon thereafter in the March issue of Movement Disorders that uh, Max Grimm and his group put forward the maximum allocation extinction 
or max rules which can help reduce the number of phenotypes and guide the application of the MDSPSP criteria. So in this most recent paper uh, titled Utility of the MDSPSP uh, Criterion Practice, we then applied the max rules to that cohort to see how that plays out. And the basic design was a retrospective data collection and application of the MDSPSP criteria and then the max rules as well. So you alluded to the max rules and a little bit of how you were characterizing patients phenotypically. Can you go through that in a little uh, in a little bit more detail because it is quite a complex process? Yes, uh, that certainly was a complex process. So the first step was identifying a neuropathological cohort with path confirmed diagnoses of PSP uh, and some non PSP diagnoses uh, listed in our paper. Uh, once we identified those patients, uh, we went back retrospectively into their charts and in a blinded manner abstracted their clinical signs and symptoms, both within three years from disease onset and then beyond three years from disease onset. These were then categorized and graded according to the definitions in the MDSPSP criteria and recorded as such. Because of the complexity of the MDSPSP criteria phenotypes that are evident in Table 5 of the original manuscript from June 2017, which describes the criteria, we actually uh, built an algorithm, a statistical algorithm, to calculate all possible uh, permutations and combinations of said signs and symptoms so that we could really assess the true number of clinical phenotypes that the patients could potentially meet. Uh, and that led to the number of phenotypes per patient that you see that can be anywhere from three to five uh, per patient. After that, we systematically applied the max rules as described in the original manuscript to see if that would come up with a consensus single unifying phenotype for the patient at that point in time. Uh, and it appeared uh, from the results that the max rules were successfully able to really assign each patient one primary phenotype proving that that would be a useful tool to have for clinical and research-based consensus. Wow, yes, that is a very complex process. So basically, you took clinical information and categorized that clinical information according to a few domains like um, ocular abnormalities, postural instability, akinesia, and cognitive abnormalities, and then used those clinical domains to categorize patients as, uh, in terms of phenotypes as put forth by this um, article that you keep alluding to in the Movement Disorders Journal. And patients had so many phenotypes that you wanted to narrow it down to as few as possible in order to kind of find the dominant phenotype and you use the max criteria to do that. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. And, and in practice, it does, if you follow the, the criteria Really, to the T, it can get complicated because there are several overlapping signs and symptoms, you know, throughout each domain of that ocular motor, postural instability, akinesia, and cognitive domains that the criteria describes. And then when you go through the suggestive, possible, and probable levels of confidence, there can be a fair amount of overlap because most of these patients have a wide variety of symptoms and that variety keeps evolving throughout their disease course. So if you really apply the criteria the way it, it appears to be meant to be applied, you, you can end up with multiple phenotypes per patient. 
and that can and can lead to possible clinical and research level confusion in documentation but the max rules do help straighten that out to some extent yeah absolutely one of the things that most struck me about reading the different phenotypes that are put forth for PSP is how much overlap there is with other non-PSP diseases and how overwhelming and confusing that could be for someone who's trying to categorize these patients. Based on your results, do you think that in the end, when we're using all of these rules and criteria that you were talking about, that we are better at clinically diagnosing PSP and differentiating it from some of these other syndromes like corticobasal and frontotemporal dementia? So that's a very good question. And I think all clinical criteria for degenerative diseases have always have two aspects. The positive aspect is that we are now able to recognize many more phenotypes of PSP that would have previously gone undetected and wouldn't be in natural history or clinical trial uh, type studies. So that's the, the positive. The flip side, of course, is that there is the challenge with a lot of overlap in clinical signs and symptoms between various neurodegenerative diseases. And that, I believe, is perhaps a limiting factor for any clinical criteria that's built for a neurodegenerative disease, that it would never be 100% sensitive and specific. But I think we have certainly made immense amounts of advancement and progress in our ability to identify PSP. In clinic, would that be a 100% certain distinction from other diseases that may have overlapping features? Perhaps not. I certainly have had the experience where I see patients with a lot of different, seemingly a lot of different phenotypes, and all I'm really able to glean from a single encounter is that they have something consistent with a tauopathy, but it's not really clear which tauopathy, you know, making those kinds of large-scale generalizations. So it does seem helpful to have a way of going about it that's a little more systematic. Absolutely. I would agree 100%. And in applying the criteria as well, I felt it really does a very good job at separating for our tauopathies from non-tau disorders. So I think it really has that uh, plus point. And there in clinical practice, again, like you mentioned, we look out for those very distinct features that can categorize patients clinically or by proteinopathy. Uh, and some features may be more predictive than others, like the gaze palsy, the postural instability, or the frontal behavioral disexecutive symptoms as compared to the speech or corticobasal symptoms. So absolutely agreed. And you can imagine that that will become very relevant, those kinds of distinctions, when we get to the point as a movement disorders practice where we're able to target tau or even target PSP-specific tauopathies clinically, although we're not there yet. And of course, for research purposes, it's very important to be able to identify these patients properly prior to autopsy so we can follow them and know that they're in the same cohort. But are there any other reasons that you can think that it may be particularly important for these patients to be accurately diagnosed in clinic now? So that's a great question, and I agree. You know, it's an exciting time for PSP uh, and a lot of disease-modifying therapies on the horizon. So that really is the most exciting 
reason to be able to categorize these patients and put them in uh, the correct studies, the correct interventional trials to really move ahead with disease-modifying therapy. In the clinic, I feel it also becomes important from a prognostication standpoint. I'll give an example. For example, PSP Parkinsonism, which is a PSPP phenotype described by the criteria as compared to Parkinson's disease, may have different prognosis in the long term, and it may be helpful to be able to clinically characterize people a, a little bit more than what we can today, perhaps, uh, for, for that purpose as well. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So what would you consider to be the next step in optimizing diagnosis of these patients? So, you know, just like we discussed uh, here a few minutes ago, that it's Clinical diagnoses in office with any amount of criteria would always have some limitation and overlap with other neurodegenerative diseases. So it's really the time that it's extremely important for biological biomarkers to be developed that are PSP pathology specific or for our tau specific. The tau PET scan ligands that we have today are really not specific to for our tau. Uh, with limited binding. So development of biomarkers that would be specific to PSP and would change in a clinically meaningful way throughout the disease progression, therefore would be meaningful to follow with any interventional uh, trial as well is uh, is absolutely essential. So the second point, the so the importance of having physiological markers that correlate with the patient's symptoms and that can be followed in response to interventional trials would be another important thing to develop. It's an excellent point. For those of our listeners who may not know, can you tell us what the that specific type of tau that you mentioned is? Absolutely. So uh, the tau protein has a specific segment that has multiple repeats. So the tau protein can be characterized as a three-repeat tau protein or a four-repeat tau protein, depending on the number of those repeat segments. And that's a simplistic way of putting it, but it's just that structural heterogeneity in the tau protein itself. So for example, Alzheimer's disease has a mixture of three repeat and four repeat. Certain disorders have purely or predominantly a three or four repeat version of the tau protein. And that may lead to differences in how we target them with a drug or with a ligand for imaging. So even if tau-specific therapies are developed, then we may need to get more specific in terms of type of tau because certain therapies may only work on certain types of tau and therefore certain diseases. Agreed. And that that certainly would be would be a way to, to think about it. And just with that, I would also put in a plug that as we think about these degenerative conditions, it's always also good to take a step back and rethink that bench to bedside, what really is the pathophysiological basis and the sequence of pathophysiological events that eventually leads to tau deposition or eventually leads to neuronal dysfunction. Just so we are always thinking about other novel drug targets and other steps in that pathophysiology of disease. Absolutely. That's a really good point. There are a lot of steps before the tau actually aggregates in the brain and starts to cause problems. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. That's that's exactly what I was alluding to. 
Anything else to add before we sign off? No, I think this was a wonderful discussion. And thank you once again for having me. It's exciting always to talk about PSP and what's new on the horizon. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. I really appreciate it.